Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 131 with Dr. Ray Hull. Ray is an expert on speech and speech disorders and has taught and published a ton in this world. And we're going to get to hear from his years of wisdom and research here. So you're going to walk away learning one, how to overcome public speaking jitters, two, approaches to starting and ending a speech strong, and three, some meta perspective on the optimal rate of speech, how fast you're talking. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we mentioned here, Check out awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep131. While you're there, I recommend you get some of our goodies, such as if you'd like to be taking notes, but you can't because you're driving or running or something, the Gold Nugget email list is a solution for you. It summarizes the wisdom of each guest in an email you can read quickly, and you can sort of copy-paste, mark that up from there, and notes complete mostly done for you. There's also the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course that provides tips, tools, and tactics to help slash through some of the waste that pops up in your work week. So check those things out. One thing I'd ask for you to pay particular attention to in this conversation is our rates of speaking. You'll note that we operate perhaps at some different extremes here with Dr. Ray operating at a lower rate of speech in terms of words per minute and me at a higher rate of speech, which got me all curious. So our transcriptionist went ahead and took some extra time to take a look at segments from Ray and from myself and from Walter Cronkite. And I pulled some other stuff in for the TED Talkers and to see what that range looks like. So we're going to reflect on that at the after portion of this interview so you can get a feel and listen for, hmm, which rate of speech jives with me? What's too fast? What's too slow? How would I like to hear it? I know some listeners I've learned from our listener chats. Shout out to Beth. Listen to this podcast at 2x speed. <laughs> I thought, wow, can you even understand me, a fast talker at 2x speed? She said, yeah, it's totally cool. Anyway, just listen for that and reflect. And if you're not even digging this conversation, well, you can skip to the end to hear that part of the reflection and then you got that takeaway there. So you will not leave empty-handed. Here's Ray's story. Ray H. Hull, PhD, is a professor of communication sciences and disorders neuroscience at the College of Health Professionals at Wichita State University. He's a CEO and president of Communications Solutions, Inc. He's authored 14 books on the art of communication and disorders of communication. Over 600 presentations on communication, the art of, at conference in the U.S., Europe, Canada, and South America, and over 70 professional articles with numerous national awards for his professional service, including the Public Health Service Award for service on behalf of persons with communicative disorders, fellowship of the American Speech Language Hearing Association, distinguished scholar at both the University of Colorado and Wichita State University, who's who among America's educators, the Red River Award and many others. Here's Dr. Raymond Hull. Ray, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Well, it's good to be here. Well, you have quite an array of experience that I thought at first it might be fun if you could break the ice a little bit and tell us a bit about some of your theatrical experience and how that's carried over into your work with communication. Well, my 
theatrical experience began when I was five years old. And the part that I was chosen for, did not audition for, was Papa Bear <laughs> in The Three Bears in my kindergarten class. And so it begins. <laughs> oh, yes. And I brought the house down. It was just, it was just <laughs> wonderful, a wonderful performance. But really, I've been in many of the uh, Shakespearean plays. I was Iago in Othello. I was Hamlet in Hamlet. I even won the Oscar for the best actor <laughs> my freshman year in college at Ottawa University. And I love the theater. I love being on stage or I love being backstage, too. But I love being on stage. I tell my audiences that if you give me a spotlight, a stage and a good microphone, I'm a happy boy. Well, that's good. Well, your microphone sounds pretty good here today. Well, I, for most of my life, I was a severe stutterer. Hmm. I couldn't say my name. I couldn't say hello on the telephone. Oh, I would be embarrassed innumerable times as I tried to ask a young lady out on a date when I was in high school, and she would look at me with this sort of a understanding look that made me feel awful. But uh, on stage, I was told by a director at one time that I could have the part, the lead in a play that I really wanted to be the lead in, if I promised not to stutter. And that's one of the worst things that you can tell a stutterer, <laughs> because it's like saying, in five minutes, we're going to ask you your name. And by that time, you're so you have fallen apart and are groveling on the floor trying to get the first sound out. But I think that those years of severe stuttering has given me a an outlook on the process of human communication that is unique. And I'll tell you sometime how I stopped stuttering. Good. Well, so now tell us, you also work with many folks who have communication disorders, and you're sort of one of the foremost authorities on that topic. You know, I'd like to get your perspective on how, you know, your own stuttering experience and working with those who have some of these communication disorders has illuminated, you know, what's going on in the brain when it comes to communicating well or not so well. That's a really tough question. Jim Stovall and I are in the process of writing another book where the series is called, it's called The Art of Learning. And I've been working on a chapter called The Neuroscience of Communication. and you know, I have dissected innumerable brains and brain stems from birth every decade up through age 90, looking at the aging process and the effect of aging on our brain. But when you consider the fact that our brain consists of somewhere around 100 billion nerve cells, or there's actually storage and processing cells, that interact with each other by way of approximately one quadrillion, if you can imagine that number, mm -hmm. transmitting connectors or synapses that interconnect each of those neurons or each of those brain cells. The fact that the whole system works 
And the fact that we can communicate is really amazing. And when you consider the fact that when we communicate, the intricacy of each of the sequences of what happens to us as we are initiating communication, for example, our diaphragm has to move up in a pulsing manner in order to bring air through our vocal folds, but at the same time, the same instance, the same milliseconds, we have to bring our vocal folds together so that we can utter a sound. And as we utter a sound, then at the same instant, our tongue, our soft palate, our mandible, our jaw, everything has to be working in sequence to allow for us to utter the first sound of the first word that we are wanting to say. And the fact that that has to happen in an exact sequence of movements is to me mind-boggling. And as we look at that sequence and that complexity of that whole system, it's a wonder that we can communicate because at exactly the same moment, our brain has to call up the words that we intend to say and then our vocal mechanism, our larynx, and our vocal folds, and our tongue, and soft palate, and lips, and all that it takes to articulate sounds have to be moving in order to utter those words. When a person has a stroke, for example, that system is interrupted so that the individual perhaps will not be able to say the words that they would like to say. A stutterer, as I was, is unable to call up the movements in sequence so that we can utter the first sound. And then perhaps after uttering the first sound, there are repetitions and repetitions and more repetitions that just do not allow us to utter the words that we would like to. Our vocal mechanism, our larynx, is a very fragile system, and we can abuse it. Mm-hmm. Understood. So now I'd love to sort of zoom into some of the practical tidbits. So you've co-authored the book, The Art of Presentation, and I'd love to hear in your experience as you've been promoting it and sharing it with people, what have they responded to in terms of saying, wow, that is a brilliant suggestion. You know, what should we do to boost our game when it comes to the art of presentation? Oh, I need to tell you something. Uh, I received an email this morning that Amway is using this book, The Art of Presentation, and the book, The Art of Communication, as their Books of the Month Club winners. Oh, congratulations. And are recommended for reading for all of their Amway salespeople. So I thought that was interesting. The most frequent comment that I have received is that people fear public speaking. Of all their fears, you know, the fear of heights, the fear of falling, airline crashes, snakes, spiders, even death. The greatest of their fears is public speaking. And in reading this book on the art of presentation, they have tended to feel as though 
they're not fearing this event that they may be getting ready for as much as they did before. Because I think that in the first chapter of the book, The Art of Presentation, where I say, you are the artist and the performer, the performance that you create, the scenery, the picture that you evoke with your words, touching the heart and soul of those who receive it, is your audience. And I think people have come to terms with their own fears by reading that small amount of information where I say that it is an art form, that it comes from you, an individual who possesses your own individual style. You don't have to be someone else. You don't have to emulate anyone. You create the stage, the scenery, and the characters as you envision them, not as someone else would envision them. And I think that gives them the courage that what I'm doing or what I'm getting ready for in terms of preparing for a presentation that they may be looking forward or not looking forward to presenting, that this is something that is them, that is theirs, their own individual identity. And so just have fun with it. Oh, I see. So that's very helpful right there. So by sort of not trying to measure up and compare the performance to somebody else and you just sort of doing your natural artistic expression thing, that just sort of creates a little bit of a calm and liberation and ability to just go there naturally. That's right. Just go and do your own thing and have fun. I say we don't want our performance to be a reckless one, to show off or to stage act. And I think people feel sometimes as though they have to become an actor or an actress. The best presenters, the best public speakers are those who present themselves as themselves. They speak to the audience in a conversational way. They do not have to perform. They do not have to raise their voice and pound the lectern. They are to simply talk to their audience. And I tell them, instead of standing behind a lectern, walk toward the front of the stage and pick out some people in the audience you would like to talk to. And as you are talking to them, it appears to the others that you're speaking to all of them. But just to speak in a conversational, casual way, and people will respect you, and they will like your presentation. You don't have to be afraid of it. Okay, well, that's great to hear. And so I'd also love to hear, so that's one tip there when it comes to, hey, don't speak behind the lectern, go ahead and step out from it. You know, what are some other things you observe that are sort of mistakes or practices you'd recommend just avoiding? Oh boy, that's a tough one. I think probably beginning a presentation is a hard one for many people. They tell me, you know, or they ask me, how do I know how to begin? You know, what do I do? How do I begin a presentation so that I know that I'm doing it correctly? How do I know I'm preparing my presentation so it'll be something that people will want to hear about. And so here's what I tell them. You need a strong beginning. In the last chapter that I write in the book, The Art of Presentation, I talk about the art 
of making a conclusion to your presentation so that people will remember you. And the first thing that I suggest is to begin your presentation with the ending. Okay. It's kind of mind-boggling to think about. I give an example whereby a speaker who is entering the auditorium where he is to speak says, um, I was walking from my car to this auditorium this afternoon, and I noticed a young man sitting on the sidewalk next to this very building. He was asking for money. He was asking for money to buy food. He was a nice-looking man, and I thought, well, why does he have to beg for food? And he confided in me by saying that he continues to look for work, but he simply has not been able to find work in this community. And that's a lot better introduction to a presentation because you have grabbed your audience, you're telling them a story, something that happens to you. Of course, not every presentation is going to be waiting for you outside of the building to use as an example, but it's a lot better introduction to a presentation than something like, oh, this afternoon I have come to discuss the future of our city. Well, in about 15 minutes, you're going to hear snoring Uh from the audience. But that same illustration, whether it's an illustration that you have seen as you walked into the building or a quote, but you can conclude the presentation again then by saying that we don't want to continue our city to be one that allows for a young man to sit in front of a building on a sidewalk begging for food. Here's what we need to do. And so you can use that beginning as your conclusion also, and then you give the steps that are necessary for correcting at least your thoughts about correcting that situation. One of the things that I tell my audiences when I'm doing workshops and presentations on the art of communication is to watch out about how you conclude your presentation. You know, the conclusion, for example, without warning, the speaker comes to an abrupt stop and says something like, well, I think that's about all I have to say, so I'll stop there, and sits down. Right. You know, my question is, how can a speaker think that she or he has nothing more to say? Didn't he know? Uh-huh. I think that's all I've had to say. I hear you. Yes. <laughs> or the minister who gives a sermon And then at the end of that hour, the final hymn is sung and the choir is picking up their music and the congregation is, you know, gathering their coats. And he goes out to the congregation and says, but here's what I came to tell you today and starts another mini sermon. You know, people have sitting limitations, as I tell my audiences, and we need to respect their sitting limitations. Okay. Those are just a few of the things that I tell my people when I'm instructing them on the art of communication. All right. Now, I'm interested there. So when you said open with the conclusion, you're suggesting that you have the ability to have a sort of bookends, kind of wrap-up continuity there with the story of the person begging. So there's that. And open with an illustration or a quote or something that hooks them as opposed to merely a preview outline. 
So that's good. Could you tell us then, what do you recommend in terms of identifying role models for great speakers? Like, where would you point folks in terms of saying, you know, this is a person who really has it nailed. Watch carefully what he or she does. That's really a tough one. There are so many poor speakers that it's hard sometimes to identify really good ones. I ask my audiences, do you remember Walter Cronkite? Because too many speakers. Just last week, our College of Health Professions had a um, seminar that was being put on by a well-known speaker. And she was speaking, I'm sure, at a rate of well over 200 words per minute. No kidding. The audience were becoming very restless because they could only understand perhaps a fraction of what she was saying. She was stumbling over words. She was speaking so rapidly. I refer people to Walter Cronkite, for example, and his manner of speaking. He spoke at a rate of approximately 120 to 124 words per minute. Our central nervous system can comprehend the words that are being uttered. But also, when you're speaking at that rate, we begin to articulate all of the sounds of speech. We call them the suprasegmental aspects of speech. There I'm talking about the inflectional clues, the pauses, the melody of speech becomes more predominant. Pauses become more effective. And Walter Cronkite emulated that perfectly. John F. Kennedy, even though he had a very strong Bostonian dialect, did the same thing. He was the epitome of a very fine public speaker. President Obama, or our past President Obama, spoke very well, but I wish that I could have worked with him because he cut off the last sounds of many of the last words in sentences. And I wish that I could have worked with him to correct that. Otherwise, he did quite well. Tom Brokaw, when he was active in news broadcasting, also spoke at a rate of around 120 to 124 words per minute. And people could understand him. People loved to listen to him. They loved to listen to Walter Cronkite. They loved to listen to John F. Kennedy. And I think, you know, of the three that I can think of right off the top of my head, those are some of the best. Well, that's so fascinating, that 120 words per minute rate. I mean, as we're speaking right now, I'm thinking Ray is talking more slowly than most of my podcast guests. And I believe I recall that study of some TED Talks ran at about 160-ish words per minute. Yes. Maybe they're trying to make the most of their 18 minutes (laughs) and getting their idea out there. So what's your take? I mean, I'm wondering a little bit if... A slower rate of speech can sort of put people into a 
maybe just a very cozy, it's almost like, oh, this is soothing. I want to be sleeping right now kind of a vibe. <laughs> What's your take on terms of rate of speech and variability and the pros and cons there? Well, I'll tell you what. If people cannot understand what you're saying, then there's no reason to be talking. But it depends on how what you are saying is being presented. If you are presenting things, if or you are vocally animated so that you have the rhythm, the inflection, the melody of speech down, then people are going to attend to you. If what you are saying is intriguing to them, is interesting to them, is attracting their attention, then they're not going to fall asleep on us. (laughs) And you need to have the ability to interject some humor. You need to have in your repertoire of your vocabulary that you can use uh, twists on words that is going to keep them interested. And if you have in your repertoire stories that you tell that people are interested in, then they're not going to fall asleep no matter. But you don't want to speak so slowly that you put them to sleep, but you should speak at a rate that is easily understood. Okay, good deal. Thank you. Well, so Ray, tell me, is there anything else you want to make sure we cover off before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? When I was a severe stutterer, I, against my public speaking coach's wishes, I tried out for men's oratory in college when I was a senior in college. And for whatever reason, probably lack of competition, I won the local competition Oh, great. And then I had to go on to the state intercollegiate competition, the University of Kansas, Kansas State University, other universities around the state. And I came from a small college, a small, very conservative Church of the Brethren college. And so I came from the smallest representative body at that competition. And as I drove there, to Kansas State University to give my competitive oration. I was late because it was snowing. It was a March snowstorm, and I parked at the edge of a field, an open field at that university, and I asked someone where the building I was supposed to be going to, and they pointed at it, and it was across that field. My parents had just bought me a pair of new shoes, And I had a new suit on, and I walked across that field. And by the time I got to the building where I was to give my oration, a 15-minute oration on world peace, it seems as though most oratory competitions have the topic of world peace. But by the time I arrived there, I had mud on my all over my shoes, Mm. cuffs of my slacks of my new suit. And I walked into the building, and I found the room where the competition was being held and the last speaker was just finishing his oration and when he finished I stuck my head in the door and asked them if there was still time for me to give mine and they conferred and said yes and then I asked if I could have just a couple of minutes so I could go to men's restroom 
to try to wash off my shoes and the cuff of my pants, and they allowed me to do that. And I came back in. After I had done that, I still had some mud on my shoes and mud on the cuffs of my slacks, but I walked up to the front of the room, thanked them for allowing me to take the time to do that, and I was so concerned about the mud and being late and being lost that I gave my 15-minute oration without stuttering. Huh? And I received a call that night. After I finished, I said, thank you, and I left the room and walked back across that field and got in my car and drove the 140 miles back to our farm. And later that night, I received a call from my forensics coach, and he said, guess what? You won the state championship for intercollegiate oratory. Nice work. And, you know, that was really the turning point in my speaking. From that time on, I was able to speak with greater clarity and without the uh, stuttering that I had experienced throughout my whole lifetime since I was little up to, you know, my young adulthood. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That's good that the different perspective in terms of what you were conscious of changed everything. And that's a pretty cool takeaway. Well, that just means that anybody can do it. Mm -hmm. Well, now could you start us off by sharing a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? A strong beginning is good, but a great ending is even better. And I think that the unknown author who composed that was probably actually referring to life. But I almost immediately related it to public speaking. That a good beginning to our presentations is important. But in order to grab the attention of your audience, a better ending gives the audience something to remember, to remember you and your message. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, whether that's a piece of hardware or software or gadget or product or service, something you find really helpful for being awesome at your job? A good microphone. Okay, yes. There are too many instances in which the PA system and the microphone are not such that allow a public speaker to do their very best, to sound as good as they could otherwise. And that's one thing that I always require, even if I'm speaking to an audience of 15 people. I know I'm told, oh, you don't need a microphone for these people. Well, yes, I do, because I want them to hear every word that I am saying. And even if I have to bring my own PA system, I will have one. But that and good lighting are the essentials for a good presentation. Okay. And what would you say is the best place to contact you or if folks want to get in touch or learn more about what you're up to, where would you point them? Well, my email address is a very simple one. It's ray, R-A-Y, dot hull, H-U-L-L, at Wichita, that's W-I-C-H-I-T-A, dot E-D-U. So that's ray.hull at wichita.edu. Can't get more simple than that. Okay, right. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? When you're asked to speak before your colleagues, that is one of the most difficult audiences 
that I can think of. Because our colleagues know us, and we become very vulnerable as we stand before them. But as we are speaking to our colleagues in our business life, to forget about them as colleagues, although we cannot forget them as colleagues because they are those with whom we work each day, but to not be afraid, not feel the vulnerability that sometimes we feel when we're talking to our colleagues and to speak to them as friends. All right. Thank you. Well, Ray, really appreciate you taking the time here. This has been fun to get your insights and perspectives, and I wish you lots of luck. Well, thank you very much. It's been nice talking with you. All right, so there you have it. I mentioned at the beginning we were going to reflect a little bit on rates of speech, and so I got some results to share for you. It turned out from the samples that we looked at that Ray Hull was operating at just about 106 words per minute. And I was operating at about 179 words per minute. Ray mentioned Walter Cronkite. And the samples that we happened to look at showed that at about 163 words per minute. So there we have it. Ray is slower. I am faster. Walter Cronkite in the middle there. If you drop by awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep131, you can check out the details behind that as well as Walter Cronkite sampling to see the rate of speech there. And for a point of comparison, TED Talkers operate between 133 and 188 words per minute with Al Gore on the slower side and Elizabeth Gilbert on the faster side. So I think it's pretty intriguing that there's a world of range there. My hunch is that most folks would prefer a speaker who talks more quickly than Ray Hole in this conversation and more slowly than myself. So maybe someone like Walter Cronkite. The internet tells me that uh, 140 to 160 words per minute is good. I think that that really does vary sort of person by person and your preference and how that works for you. And also just to have some variation in your rate of speech makes things more engaging to listen to. So it's not all fast, nonstop, go, 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 go. And it's also not dragging, but there are portions in which you're excited, you're moving faster. And other times you got to think about it and it gets kind of powerful and thoughtful. So that's one key to being dynamic is having some variation in your speaking and generally being faster than boring and slower than unintelligible. So give a thought for that. And if you're curious about what your rate of speech is, well, don't forget we had a cool guest who made an app for that. That's Anshul Baki back in episode 24. The app is called Umo. You can play with that a little bit. It's pretty cool and accurate and handy and just sort of see how that works. And I'd also like your feedback. Should I slow it down? I know I talk faster when I know what I'm saying, like I'm reading the bio. And I just want to make sure that this is optimal for you. Shoot me a note anytime, Pete at awesomeatyourjob.com. I'd also recommend you punch the subscribe button if you haven't already, so you won't miss folks like our very next guest. It's my friend, Shannon Clark. She is a super expert in the world of user experience, usability stuff. And there's a lot of lessons learned associated with that and a cool career journey that I think will spark some nice inspiration. So I hope to catch you then and peace. Peace. 
Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.